A reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this morning we thank you for the privilege of getting to draw near to you. We thank you for the truth that you have called us, that we belong to you, and that we get to experience just a taste of your goodness and of your grace as we, as we gather together in worship. So, Lord, I ask that you would please be with us this morning. Uh, we ask that you would take these words that you have inspired to be written and that you would apply them to our hearts. And, Father, in doing so, we pray that we would behold Jesus. And we ask that he would be magnified in everything that is said and sung and prayed this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, somewhat recently, um, I'm not exactly sure when, when this happened, uh, but my wife and I were talking, and uh, while we were trying to figure out something logistical, and I'm like not very good trying to figure things out logistically, so it requires all of my attention. So I was talking to Katie, and um, our two-year-old daughter, Harper, was like in the adjacent room working on something on her little art easel. And she'd finish, and she really wanted Katie and I to look up and to pay attention and to behold what she had just created. And I could not, because uh, I cannot do two things at once. I cannot. Don't ask me to chew or to walk gum, to, to walk gum, to walk and chew gum. See, um, we're off to a, off to a great start. But I was not able to to pay attention to my daughter. And after saying "excuse me" about thirty times, she's like, "I'm not going to say excuse me for a thirty-first time." So she just kind of resorted to jumping up and down and saying, "Look at me!" So we were caught off guard and didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, so we just like, "Okay, we're we're giving up on trying to figure this thing out. We're going to look at our daughter." Now, what Harper did there? This was a two and a half year old expression of a deep need that we all have. We all have a desire to be seen and to be known and to be encouraged. Even if you don't see yourself as a words of affirmation type of person, even if someone coming up to you and saying, you're really good at this makes you like deeply uncomfortable, you still need that. You still need to know that you are seen, that your efforts are building towards something, that they are appreciated, that they matter. Friends, we need encouragement. And this is why God commands us to encourage one another and build one another up. Our life together in the church ought to be characterized by encouragement. And so that is going to be our focus this morning. So today, we're going to look at three things together. 
They should show up there at any point. Caleb, would you help me out? All right. So the three things that we're going to be looking at together are this, the reality and danger of discouragement, the source of true encouragement, and the call to encourage one another. Um, There is a slide that has those things up there, and by God's grace, maybe that'll show up. We'll see. All right, so we're going to begin with, um, with the reality and danger of discouragement. Now, I think it is always, you know, always a good idea to start a sermon on encouragement by talking about discouragement. That's not a downer move at all. Now, but the reality of discouragement makes the need for encouragement so vital. So right now, I, I would encourage you to, to take stock. You know, think, are you feeling encouraged right now? Just in general, are you walking around with a spirit of encouragement? Well, if you are, praise God, because that is a gift that ought to be celebrated. But if not, take heart, knowing that those feelings are understandable and have been shared by a lot of people whom God has used mightily. Why do feelings of discouragement make sense? Well, for one thing, we live in a fallen world. Romans 8 tells us, eventually, but the one that I'm looking for is, it doesn't matter. All right, Romans 8 tells us, for the creation was subjected to futility. And has been, according to Romans 8.22, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So all of creation has been affected by sin. Nothing, nothing is as it truly should be. But the problem isn't just out there. The problem is also within us. As Paul writes earlier in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think Paul speaks for many of us when he says in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Do you ever feel that way? Just a few verses before that, he says this in Romans 7, 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And when humans who struggle in this way try to relate to other humans who also struggle in this way, guess what? Disaster often ensues. We often feel discouraged because others don't seem to notice us. Or when they do, their feedback cuts, sometimes deeply. I was watching a movie recently in which one of the main characters said this about his father. He says, his words were like a weight on my chest. My whole life, I just tried not to get crushed. I read read recently that as a child, uh, one of Thomas Edison's teachers believed that he was, quote, too stupid to learn anything. Thomas Edison, of course, is the man that we now think of as one of America's greatest inventors. One of Walt Disney's editors reportedly said that Disney, quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Discouragement is real. And it comes from all sorts of different places. And when we are discouraged, it can be easy for us to begin to doubt God's promises and his presence. 
I think a powerful example of that could be seen, could be seen in 1 Kings 19. Uh, this chapter is about Elijah, who immediately after a moment of triumph faces the possibility of defeat. There's a corrupt queen named Jezebel who, who is out to get him, and despite just having a victorious moment, when he sees that he is yet again going to be out on the run, he is done for. And so he, we read in 1 Kings 19.4, but he himself, this is Elijah, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And friends, that is the danger of discouragement. When we are discouraged, we are often incapable of seeing the story that God is at work weaving through our hardships. But friends, there is hope. See, if you can resonate with Elijah's story even to a point, if you can see what he expresses here and say, yeah, that's, that has been me, then you can know that you don't need to hide those feelings from God. See, despite how you might be feeling, our God sees you, and He knows your struggles even better than you do, and He will work with you even if you are feeling overcome by discouragement. These aren't things to hide from God. No, we should, like Elijah, confess them, be open and honest with how we are actually doing knowing that it isn't going to scare God away. He will never look at that confession and, and be annoyed by it or say, you know what, this is just too much, too many feelings, can't handle this. No, that is not our God. The 16th century pastor and theologian Richard Sibbs once wrote this, There's never a holy sigh, never a tear shed which is lost. Take heed of a spirit of discouragement, since we have so gracious a Savior. And look at how the rest of the story pans out for Elijah. In the, in the next few verses, we see that after he makes an honest and real confession about where he was at, God didn't scold him. God didn't cast him out. Instead, this is what we read, Elijah laid down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And when Elijah arrived at Horeb, he met God. God spoke to him, not in a strong wind, not in an earthquake, not in fire. No, God spoke to him in a whisper, in a still, small voice. Our discouragement is real and it is valid, but it is not the end of the story. This quote is from Lindsay Carlson. She recently published a book on encouragement, and she wrote, 
when you don't hold editorial privilege over every aspect of your life and story, which unfortunately none of us do, God encourages you to look for His unfolding grace. When we don't have the choice to sidestep pain, suffering, or discouragement, we can always trust that God is in the process of writing a beautiful story of redemption. And friends, that story is, my next point, the source of encouragement. So looking more intently at our passage, we we see this truth. So our main passage this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11. Now, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Thessalonica. It was a Roman province in Macedonia. Now, this was a church that Paul planted along with Paul, not that is Paul, along with Timothy and Silas. And he loved this church, and he cared deeply for it. So he knows who he's talking to when he encourages this church to encourage one another. But before encouraging the church to do that, he lays out the source of their encouragement. And we see that in verses 9 through 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Why can you be encouraged despite being a sinful person in a broken world? Because our God holds true to his promises. Because despite earning God's wrath through sin, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that is not what awaits you. Now, we're reminded in verse 10 that Jesus took on God's wrath on himself at the cross so that we could obtain salvation. See, when you're feeling down, friends, this this is the first thing that you need to be reminded of. Our God stands ready to help you. He is there with you. He is already taking care of your greatest need. And so we can hear Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, we could hear that as good news. And notice, Jesus calls the weary. He doesn't call, you know, all you who are rock stars, all you who, who have life figured out, all you who are just slaying No, he calls the weary to come. And what does he promise? He promises rest. Doesn't that sound nice? And you can trust his promises. As Augustine wrote, God is not a deceiver that he should offer to support us. And then when we lean upon him, should slip away from us. See, the one who is willing to go to the cross for us will not abandon us in whatever it is we're facing now. Now, we live in a culture that, that is fixated on self-esteem, and as a result, the self-help industry is booming. So in 2019, the self-help industry was worth $11.6 billion, and some have projected that by the year 2025, it'll grow to being worth about $14 billion. And Forbes reports that millennials, so my people, are shelling out nearly $300 a month on self-help products, services, and strategies. Now, that is not a negative thing. There are lots of good resources out there. 
However, I think that we have largely been trained to think that when we are in a season of discouragement, the thing that we need is a strategy or a professional or a service or a pep squad to come alongside us and tell us how great we really are. And that sounds nice for a minute, but then we're eventually confronted with the truth of, on our own, we're not necessarily that great. We don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to meet many of the problems that we face, hence the discouragement, right? If we just had the natural resources in ourselves to, 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 to meet every problem head on, no one would be discouraged. Back in the, back in the 90s, there was a, a recurring Saturday Night Live skit called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. Uh, it was played by Al Franken, um, and Franken played a, uh, a talk show host um, called Daily Affirmations, and every episode would begin with uh, him looking into a mirror and declaring to his reflection, you're going to have a great show today because you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Well, that's nice. That sounds nice. The unfortunate reality, though, is that, again, on our own, we often aren't good enough or smart enough. And if we were, then a lot of people wouldn't like us. So our primary need when we're feeling discouraged is not blanket affirmation. You can do it. You're a rock star. To be told how great we are. No, instead, our primary need is to be rooted in the truth of God's promises. To be reminded that you are going to be okay. Not because you've got what it takes on your own, but because our Savior does. He has already faced your biggest dilemma, the dilemma of sin and the wrath of God at great personal cost to himself. So he is not going to leave you hanging now, no matter what you're facing. Life may not head in the direction that you thought it should, but it does not mean that our Savior is not there with you. Now, if you hear that, you know, that our primary need isn't affirmation, but grounding in the truth and think, well, maybe, but that doesn't sound very, very personal, very personally impactful, I would want you to, to consider two things with me. First, I would want to gently challenge the individualism that's inherent in that sentiment. See, we've been conditioned to think that, that we are at the center of reality, that we are at the center of our reality, and our reality is really the only reality that we can know, right? That we are the main character, and God and other people are, are you know, sub-points or, or sub-characters in, in, in the story that we are writing. But friends, that, that can't be true of everyone. I mean, think of a story in which every single person is a main character. That's not a story, that's a jumbled mess. And the truth is, that message that, that it's all about you, it really does leave us wanting. Interestingly, there's a, a song by, uh, by a band called The Fleet Foxes that I think gets at this point. It shows the beginnings of our disillusionment with this mentality. This is not a, a Christian band by any stretch, but their song, Helplessness Blues, begins with these words. It says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be 
a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. This guy sounds like he grew up with participation trophies, just like me. But the truth is, like, that message that it is about you, it does leave us wanting. It is not satisfying. Why? Because, friends, we were made to serve something larger than ourselves. We were made to praise and worship God, not to receive praise and worship from Him. And Jesus reminds us that we will find our lives first by losing them. When we try to make God and other people orbit around us, everything falls apart. It is much more satisfying to see ourselves as part of God's story than the other way around. So that's the first thing I would encourage you to consider. The second is that even though our primary source of encouragement is to be found in God's promises, not our skills, the encouragement that God provides, friends, that is still deeply, deeply personal. If we can put First uh, Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10 back up there. Reading these verses, what is the end result of our salvation? Jesus died so that we might live with, live with him. Right? Notice that according to this text, Jesus didn't die so that you could simply live. No, he invites us into life with him. Right? God doesn't say, okay, you can be saved, that's fine, just, just go be saved over there. Right? It's been too much, I'm tired of you. No, that's not at all the message. See, in our salvation, we are brought into union with Jesus. We receive life with Christ. And the one who calls us to himself, the one we become united with, is the one who says in Luke 12, 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And then in John 10, 3, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Friends, even though your story isn't just about you, it is still deeply personal. God knows you intimately. He knows your name, and he loves you. That is a beautiful thing. If you feel like you're not being noticed, like all of your efforts go unappreciated, that they go unseen, friends, hear this. Our God sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you. He knows your name, and he has set his love on you. Could there be a better encouragement? I don't think so. Let's now look at the call to encourage one another. Uh, In verse 11, Paul writes this, Therefore, encourage one another. And build one another up just as you are doing. God doesn't just give us this truth that I have have called you, I have saved you, and you're going to be with me. He doesn't just give us that and say, go for it. No, instead he blesses us with the gift of community. And he calls us to experience those good truths together. We get to serve one another as we draw nearer to him. Lindsay Carlson once again writes, One of the most frequent ways that God meets the needs of his people is by enabling their hands, feet, and voices 
to serve one another. That is a gift. So after giving us a pretty fantastic reason to be encouraged, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica to encourage one another and build each other up. Now the verb translated encourage in this text is the Greek word parakaleo. It literally means to call to one side. And this word is related to, to the noun parakletos, a word, often translated, uh, a word often translated helper, advocate, or comforter, and is used of the Holy Spirit. Right, so what are, we, what are we being called to when we're called into parakaleo ministry? We're called into the work that the Spirit does, work of, of comforting, helping, advocating for, encouraging one another in the truth. We're called to look out for our brothers and sisters in the church, And when we see that they are discouraged, we call them to our side and we help them, we comfort them in God's promises. So friends, this means that we need to have our eyes open to the needs that are present here in this church. Who do you know that might need encouragement? How can you come alongside someone to help comfort and strengthen them in the truth? And what sort of comfort and what, what sort of comfort are we to provide? Well, first and foremost, it's comfort rooted in the promises of God. Right? We come alongside one another to remind each other that everything really is going to be all right, because God has made sure of that. The one who holds the universe is holding you. Again, he knows your name. He has called you to himself, and he is right there with you in whatever you're facing. And we, need, and we need one another in order to remember that that is really true. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together, says a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. That's a beautiful truth. So the question is, how do we come alongside? How do we help? How do we encourage people practically? Well, I think the first step is to listen to each other. I think sometimes we can be a little too eager with truth bombs so that people who are feeling discouraged end up feeling bulldozed at the same time. Think back to the Elijah story. When we encountered Elijah hopelessly discouraged, right, wanting to die, he was coming off of an incredible victory. He had literally, literally, just called down fire from heaven, right? It's like the ultimate God sign. You want to see God's power? Fire from heaven. I feel like it's, it's the thing that skeptics ask for. Well, you know, why doesn't God smite this person? Why doesn't he call down fire? God did that for Elijah, If someone had reason to be encouraged, it was him in that moment. But again, Jezebel was out to get him, and instead of standing in the strength of that previous victory, he is done. He's done. He's had it. And how does God respond to him? He doesn't come to him and and, and frustrated, indignant, and shake him, saying, I literally just called on fire for you. Like, what what more could you ask for? No. What does God do? He sends an angel, and this angel allows Elijah to take a nap. He bakes him a cake, and he gives him water. I mean, that is, that is 
love and care that just seems beyond, because it is. And I think that that is a good pattern for us to follow. When you see someone who is in the pit, who is discouraged, who cannot get themselves up out of it, your job isn't to shout from the top of the pit, hey, come on up here, it's better. No, your job is to go down into the pit with your friends. And when they are ready, after they've had a nap and some cake and some water, then we can begin to express truths, not just general affirmations, you got this, you can do this, you're a rock star, you're amazing, because that's probably not going to help. But instead, in the pit with our friends, we can remind them that our God is faithful, that he has set his love on you, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he is with you always, even to the end of the age that he is working all things together, even the terrible things. He's working all things together for your good and his glory. That is the truth that we get to provide for our friends who are hurting. That is parakaleo ministry. But again, it is done down in the pit with your friend who's hurting. It's not annoyed. It's not indignant. It doesn't shake them up. No, it comes alongside gently. But the work of encouragement doesn't end there. In addition to reminding one another of and encouraging one another in the truth, we're also called to build one another up. And this is where we balance the truth that our hope is not in ourselves and our abilities to figure things out with the other truth that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And because of that, we have dignity and worth. And this isn't me just saying this. This is what God's word declares. So in uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, David writes this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And you, friends, according to Genesis 127, are made in the image of God. So again, right, despite your sin, despite your fallen nature, despite some of the ways in which you know you don't measure up, you have dignity, you have worth, you have value. And you are able to demonstrate the goodness of God in manifold ways. That is an amazing reality. And it sits alongside of the fact that, that we are also sinful. Both things end up being true. So there are ways in which we can build each other up. So as Christians, we have the privilege and the responsibility of reminding one another of the fact that our sin isn't the only thing that's there. That we also get to show forth the goodness of God. And we get to call out ways in our brothers and sisters that we observe that. We do this as a way of honoring God and encouraging one another. Now, on this side of heaven, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian, and there's no such thing as a perfect Christian community. Many of the problems that we see in the world make a home in the church as well. But nonetheless, God is still at work here. And there are going to be encouraging things that we can call out in one another. 
So do it, (laughs) because we need it. We need other people to point out the ways in which the Spirit is at work, because often we struggle to see it ourselves. Research has shown that as humans, we tend to remember traumatic experiences better than positive ones, to recall insults better than praise, to react more negatively to, excuse me, to, to react more strongly to negative stimuli. Uh, we, we tend to think more about negative things and we think about them more frequently than positive ones. And we respond more strongly to negative events than to equally positive ones, right? Our bent is to focus on the things that are wrong. So given all of this, we need the gentle and kind words of our brothers and sisters to help spur us on, to help us know that the negative things don't tell the whole story. We need this in order to become the people that God is calling us to be. And this is something that I think is made possible by the gospel. See, I think that, the, the, that secure people, people who are secure, are the best encouragers. And what better security could be provided than the fact that the God of the universe looks at you and says, you are mine. This is someone that I have fearfully and wonderfully made who is able to say through Christ, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. See, the gospel of Jesus eliminates competition. In the gospel, you're deemed lovely because God has set his love on you not because of anything that you produce. Which means, friends, you've got nothing to prove. It frees us then, I think, in a unique way to call out good things, to call out lovely things in your friends. So I think one of the things that often gets in the way is if we call out good things in other people, then it somehow detracts from ourselves. But again, the gospel destroys all of that. So think Where do you see God at work in this community? Because he is. Where have you seen brothers and sisters exemplify the goodness of God? What is something that you can call out in a friend that might encourage them, further spur them on to become the people that God is calling them to be? This is good and important work. So let's do it faithfully, and let's do it with joy. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the, the deep and intimate, the personal care that you provide for us. And Lord, we ask that you would take that reality and apply it to our hearts so that we could fight the feelings of discouragement. God, we know there are many ways in which we fail to measure up. but we ask that you would help us to not simply focus on that, but to know that in Christ, we are deeply and truly known and loved. And Father, may that reality spur us on to love and good works. Lord, we pray that this church would be a place in which people can be known and encouraged. We ask that you'd give us what we need to come alongside those who are hurting. Father, give us wisdom and when and how to share the truths of your promises. 
the reality that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, we, we ask that you would help us to encourage one another with that truth. And in addition, God, help us to have eyes to see the ways in which you are at work in this community and give us the boldness to call that out in one another. May this be a place where people are built up and refreshed. And may that then pour out into our lives throughout the week. Father, help us to go out from here boldly sharing the message of love because it truly is transformative. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.